hold your place there in Matthew 24. This is a continuation of him answering these three questions. And I want you to realize that his answer goes through all of Matthew 24. It goes through all of Matthew 25. The first chapter, 24, is a prophetic look. And he gives us actual facts of what it's going to look like and how it will lay out in the end. Chapter 25 is a parable look. It's what gives us action, what we're supposed to be doing during this time. And he tells it to us in parables of what the end should be like. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read Daniel in Revelation, I get pretty, um, what would you use the word, nervous about what it's going to be like for those that are left, right? I'm going to tell you one of the most reassuring verses in the Bible is Matthew 24, 14 to me. It says, and the gospel shall be preached to the end of the age. So that shows me that the preaching group is going to still be alive. So I was like, hey, that's the group that I want to belong to, be a charter member, because they're going to make it clear to the end. If this gospel is going to be preached to the end of the age, then you can be assured that those who are preaching are going to make it to the end. So I like that verse. To me, it's a promise that the gospel will be spread all over the earth in the glory of the Lord. So as you see it, Jesus begins to separate these things out, and he actually begins to answer their questions. Okay, today we're going to call this lesson the sin of omission. That's for the more intellectual types among us. The sin of omission. But for the regular crowd, and what I'd like to call it, is I'm going to call it Mr. Do-Nothing. And what happens to Mr. Do-Nothing during this time, or during this period of time that Jesus lays out? Now, Jesus likes to talk about Mr. Do-Nothing a lot while he's speaking. I mean, if you look at his parables that are non-related to the end time, Mr. Do-Nothing appears a lot in them. I was thinking about the parable of the two sons. I was thinking about the prodigal who didn't want to work on the family farm, so he took off. The bigger barns guy, the four souls, the double-duty slave, Lazarus and the rich man, the squandering servant, the crumbling foundation of the man who hears, but he doesn't do. The good Samaritan. And so Mr. Do-Nothing goes through life and he sees how little he can get away with. You know, I always felt like I could relate to Mr. Do-Nothing. He's the easy guy. This is a horrible picture of Mr. Do-Nothing. And he appears in this, and I thought today we'd talk about the danger of being, let's call him Dudley Do-Nothing. And what will happen to our life if we fall into that camp? The scary part is, I wish the Bible had made it where there was good and evil. People who did good things and people who did bad things. But to me, the strongest categories he gives is not good and bad or good and evil. But he gives good and passive. Good and Dudley do nothing. And he doesn't give any middle ground for that group that says, hey, I didn't know what was going to happen during this time. I was thinking back to ORU. I was on a mission team that went into the Philippines. And we were putting on this production called The Toymaker and Sons. And because of my gifting and drama, they chose me to have the part of being half of a gate and half of a cross. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought so much about it except for the fact that they communicated to me that they definitely gave me a spot that didn't have a speaking spot to it. You know, I was a mime. And so we went all over the Philippines for two months, and I had a do-nothing kind of part. And so I thought it was interesting here that Jesus is laying out that our role or what's going to be like in the end times. So I hope our goal today is, if there's anybody in this crowd that maybe you're a visitor, you've come with someone, and you've never totally sold out to the Lord, I'm encouraging you to sell out. And then I hope that each of us will look at this and say, hey, I can raise my production level here. I can raise my productivity here. You know, a lot of times in radio we call a meeting. And we're getting together and we're looking at ways to raise our production. And I think this is what we're doing today is looking at what can we raise our productivity level. Number one parable, it begins in Matthew 24, verse 37. It's Mr. Do-Nothing. He did wrong on this one. Now this is in his carnal days. It's what we talk about during the summer, during all of our testimony times. It's what we were B.C. And in Matthew 24, it really tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. In verse 37, Noah had a group around him, and they were the partiers of his day. They were the world. Lot had the same group around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says there'll be a good slave, and there'll be a bad slave. 
And I want you to notice that the bad slide is not a drunk. The bad slide just socializes with people that eat and drink. The shocking part of this to me was not the fact that the guy participated. The shocking part was that he just spent his entertainment around it. That he was eating and drinking with drunkards. He didn't say he was a drunkard. And talks about that there's a perpetual party going on. You talk to people and if you work anywhere outside the church, you'll realize that the whole point of them getting a paycheck is so they can spend it on a Friday and a Saturday night. I mean, you're trying to get the paycheck to last as long as the month. If you listen to the conversation all week long, it's talking about what they did on the weekend and what they planned on doing the next weekend. So I see this parable in Matthew 24, 43 through 51 as very prophetic. That in the last days, it's going to be a perpetual party situation. It's nothing new. It's been passing down through history. You know, I think about what drugs and alcohol have done to our families and to churches and how it's ripped apart. Is there one family in here who has never had alcohol or drugs touch their family? I mean, it's almost like a scourge. I mean, that's amazing part that most of us have in some way had this perpetual thing going on in the world touch our family and try to destroy the foundation of our family. You know, we like to talk about it in the world and that's what they're doing, but in Montana where Jolena and Heath are, they decided to do a survey in their church and hand it out to the youth group. Now, I would tell you the most rewarding part about working with youth is finding out what parents do. I mean, to me, it's the most holy ground you can be on when a kid comes to you and they share the most intimate details of their life. And that's the amazing thing about children. They'll tell you anything. Well, so these youth pastors up in Montana put together a survey, and they asked the kids, how much of this are you involved in in your life? How many of you are your parents involved in this? Are they cussing at home? Do they have alcohol in their refrigerator? Do they allow you to go to our movies? The youth pastors were so upset when they got the survey back, they almost broke down because they were afraid. How can they change the youth? if what's happening among the adults in the church. I've always held this in reserve, thought this is a great survey, but we have never used it. So we're kind of given fair warning here. But if you look in this thing, the slave is kind of oblivious. He uses the delay of the Lord's return as an excuse to mess around. And so when he sees that the Lord was a long time in coming, now isn't it interesting in every one of these parables, it always talks about the Lord was a lot longer in coming than what we thought. So he uses this as an excuse to play around. That him being left in charge, he didn't see it as a responsibility. He actually took advantage of it. So this verse right here ties this man's belief with his behavior. Because the Lord delayed, therefore I can act any way I want to. And so he ties his belief, what he believes, in with his behavior. I think what shocked me more than anything was this story I read about this banker. Bill Banks is my mom's publisher. I was verifying the story with him the other day. He authored a book on angelic visits, and it's the skeptic's guide to angels and their visitation. And so he only used people he knew personally that had been visited by an angel. It's the most fascinating story I think I've ever read. It was not so much the fact that on a subway, an angel came and appeared to him. And then when they went through a, a long, dark tunnel, the angel changed forms in front of this guy. It was a sentence that this guy wrote in his testimony. He said, I was 34 years of age, and I realized I had never before had a compassionate thought in my entire life. I had never cared about anyone else with the possible exception of my family. And I thought, you know, when we're dealing with the world, it's a shocking thing to realize that perhaps I've never even thought about the fact that they have never had one single thought in their entire life that wasn't birthed out of selfishness. That every single thought that they have never reached outside of that, that little realm that we live in, and one time had any kind of thought that had anything to do with anyone's good. You know, if the Bible is not our authority, what keeps one person from not destroying another? I was talking to a guy in radio that I'd hired, and he was talking about that all his friends up north were atheists. 
And I was like, how do you ever get alone when everybody knows that they'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal what belongs to you, that there's no sexual morals, there's nothing in their life. And what keeps one person from not totally destroying another person? And this is what we see painted in this picture, that the guy says that he moves in from eating and drinking with drunkards to beating slaves. Have you ever noticed that where there's parties involved, there's always someone's mad at somebody? It was like when Jolena first got saved. So she was hysterical. She was going into bars and she was witnessing in bars. And well, we started noticing every week somebody was in a fight. She was pulling them off of somebody, witnessing to them. They were slamming them against the wall. And I realized there's so much of beating up fellow slaves. It just seems like it goes with the territory, that there's strife. That it moves in progression to beating up and abusing those that are around us. Okay, this is the only parable that uses overt action for any reason. Then he contrasts this to the faithful slave. And he only has a one-line sentence about the guy. And it doesn't sound near as interesting as eating and drinking with drunkards and beating up everyone around you. It just said the guy gave out food in the proper time. He was faithful. That sounds kind of, hmm, boring. It's those duties that are routine day in and day out. I would say that this parable is talking about the consistency of the Christian life. You know, a few years back, I'm on a state school team, and I had to be gone a Monday night, and I didn't find out about it until the middle of the day. So I was going to call down a bunch of my friends and try to find somebody that would fill in my place at the state school. Well, after calling down all these people, I couldn't find anyone that would take the volunteer position. I was calling down this list. And so finally I get to the last person, and I mean, it was really my last chance, and I said, hey, would you consider, it's a one-time deal, I'm not going to make this permanent, there's no trick involved, would you please take my place? And they said, well, I've got to pray about it. I don't know what hit me, but out of my mouth flew. Did you pray about brushing your teeth this morning? I mean, there's some things that are consistent duty. Are we just going to over-spiritualize everything and just hide behind it? You know, I think of mothers who give birth to children. If you're going to have children, you don't have to pray about whether you feed them. I mean, that's consistent duty. It would be a little bit... Can you imagine the husband that came home, he marries his wife, and she said, I have to pray about whether I'm going to feed you today? And we'd look at him and go, what kind of woman are you? But you know what? That same man will use that excuse towards God. And he has to pray about consistent duties. And if we're not praying about something as consistent as brushing our teeth, in this parable that Jesus uses the idea of feeding people at a proper time. To be in the a category, if I could make it as simple as saying, either in the eating category or the feeding category. It's interesting with our life which way it goes. There's a consistency of duty in regards to the account that we give. You know, I would say the most consistent people, the ones that I admire the most in this church, are those that work with the children. I mean, I watch them where we have in a guest speaker, and you know they want to hear the guest speaker. And consistently, they get up out of their chair, and they go back to the back, and they consistently feed the kids. And I look at that, and I think the rewards in heaven are for just those type of people that consistently, day in and day out, with no glory, where most of us don't even know the structure that goes on back there. I mean, heaven forbid to get stuck in nursery duty. I mean, that is worse than worse I could think of. I mean, at least with the children, there's some semblance of perhaps there'll be a reward on your life. But the babies, they're just little blobs of flesh that sit there and you've got to tend them three and four at a time and not rock over their hands and fingers. <laughs> and I look at life and I think that in this parable that what we're talking about is the consistency of the Christian life. You know, at Birchfield's camp, they say that they have them carry around a piece of lead in their pocket so that every time they ask them, would you do so-and-so, and then you go, I don't feel lead. They make them <laughs> hand out the lead. And there's so much to life that feeding at a proper time. And I think here that I would say that in this parable is what Jesus is making the, the point of is just the consistency of routine. That it isn't a glorious thing. Sometimes it's just being persistent every single day. Sometimes at state school, they, oh, they have these volunteer banquets and they try to reward us and stuff and all this for our program. But you know what? The only reason they reward us is because we've been there for 25 years and we've done it every Monday night. We're not beautiful. We're not glorious. It's not this unbelievable thing. It's just the fact that consistency 
does a lot in the kingdom of the Lord. I would tell you to challenge your life, where is the aspect of your consistency? And look at verse 47, the beautiful verse. It says, and then he will make that guy ruler. It's that beautiful aspect that the reward for true work is more work. <laughs> of a nobler and a grander scale. And then I want you to make one notation that verse 48, that the bad slave calls him Lord. But if you want to try to figure a way out of that one, that's okay. Okay, so in this one I'm going to say the two groups are the partiers and the workers. Then the next parable that immediately falls on its heels is Matthew 25 verse 1. And I want you to notice that the linking word is the word then. He starts the whole idea off with then so that you know it's a continuation of the idea. There's the first parable, the guy has overt rebellion, he has overt disobedience, he's overtly sinning. But then he tells another story, he links it. And in these parables, notice that it's the same theme through each one of them. It's the absent Lord and then those that are left with certain responsibilities. I call this one as Mr. Do-Nothing, prepared, and is he ready? Now, if you'd gone to school with me, you would have hated being next to me. I was the person consistently in school from the time I was little, clear up through college, that I forgot to bring paper, I forgot to bring pens, I didn't bring, so I was going to use yours. I was the bum. I go on mission trips and I purposely don't pack my stuff so that I can use your deodorant, your toothpaste, not your toothbrush. This parable was a horror to me to realize the bum is in trouble on this one. He is in bad shape. You know, you might go on a missionary journey and don't take any purse and any money and let God provide your needs, but not in this parable. You're in a lot of trouble. Matthew 25, 1 through 12, it's a lack of preparedness for the final or the main event overshadows your entire life. A lack of preparedness overshadows your entire life for the main event. I'll never forget Kathleen McGowan's wedding. The one thing I remember about it is I call Syl. And I go, Syl, what should I wear to this wedding? And she looked at me. She goes, Angie, it's two hours away. She goes, do you realize that people have been preparing what they're going to wear for this wedding for months? It never crossed my mind. And so I had walked into it, and she was like trying to figure out something I could put on my body to walk into one of the most important weddings Brownwood was going to have outside. And I'd forgotten all preparation. The scary part is if we forget preparation for the most important event that's ever going to happen. The lack of preparedness. Verse 5, it talks again about a delay. The bridegroom was late. Postponing preparation is really like trying to separate thunder from lightning. I'm going to get it all done between the time I see the lightning and hear the thunder. <laughs> and basically that's what the virgins were doing. He said, I'll come as quickly as a lightning bolt from the east to the west. And we try to bank on the fact that we're going to get things right in that split second. It says that both parties slept. Now I want you to make a note here. It doesn't seem like there's any condemnation for sleeping. I mean, I don't see anything in this that's talking about it being sleep. I had a youth pastor from a Baptist church meet me in the hall this uh, week, and he was yelling. And he was yelling for about an hour and a half. And he was talking about these elections. And he said, the church is asleep. He said, we are losing these elections with a hundred vote margin. And he said, what is going to wake the church up? And I've never seen such a fervency or a fervor in a man. I was pleased that when I called down our church group that everybody had already gone and handled it. But for the most part in Brownwood, it's amazing that our radio station and all the speaking, and everyone going out, and as far as all the church's influence, it sent 1,200 people to the polls. Does that kind of bother you? Does it bother you that Corey Tim Boone, that they did statistics on how many people resisted the Nazi takeover, and only 1,100 people were involved in the resistance movement? I mean, that's embarrassing to think that we could let this thing happen and our church be totally asleep and totally unprepared. Both slept. So the question is not whether one sleeps or not, but what you did when you weren't sleeping. That's how I wrote it down. What did you do in your daytime hours? This is called sleeping prepared. It's doing the right thing. 
This is not addressed to those who made no preparation for Christ's return. Write this down. This is not addressed to those who did not make no preparation for Christ's return. It's addressed to those who did not make sufficient preparation. You know, people would love to say they were not saved virgins. But the problem is they not only had a lamp, but they had one round of oil in it. So it's interesting here that the point or the force of the verse is not they forgot their lamps or B, they brought lamps with no oil. It's they didn't bring enough oil. The ability to think into the future, the ability to know that what I do today affects tomorrow. The ability to say I'm not going to sacrifice tomorrow on the altar of today. This parable is a shocking one of thinking ahead of what we should do. You know, one thing I like to think about, the part of life that I hate the most is administration duties. You know what, with this church, what the Lord blesses us in, there's people who do your administration duties for you in a lot of ways. But they're holding back the tide of things so that you can walk into church and be prepared. So you can go out and evangelize. So you can go out and do those things. They're holding back all the light bills and all the mess that goes on with with making an organization so that you can be free to do God's work. You know, I like to think of it this way. There are people holding back so much stuff from off my life. Holding back the tide of this world. The onslaught of the enemy. So that our airports are not crashed down where we cannot fly out. People holding back the tide by making their life an absolute wreck trying to handle every major important decision so I can have freedom. And what I ask you is what are we doing with the freedom that we have? There are people holding back things in the administration realm so that we can walk in. All these people had to do in this parable was be prepared for the groom's return. That's all they had to do. You know, I thought one time about Brother Jacob. Brother Jacob, when he has us there at a crusade, he pays all the money. He pays all the offerings. He does all the stages. He does all the interpreters. He does every aspect. He has put his whole life into me walking out there and speaking for 15 minutes. Do I prepare for that 15 minutes? I prepare like it took me a lifetime. Can you imagine the administration that people are handling so that your life can be just waiting for the bridegroom, just waiting for his return? In verse 10 through 12, it says that the door was shut. The door was shut. That's such an interesting idea. I think of mission trips. I think of being on the streets of San Francisco when we had kids in every single direction. And it's time to get on the bus. And we cannot find our kids because they are in the bathrooms somewhere in San Francisco. Now, they're not spread out any further than San Francisco, but they are somewhere on the streets of San Francisco. And you wait for an hour or two. I'm telling you, if you want to study logistics, study group movements, where you take a group and you're going to go down and you're going to evangelize as a group and keeping that group all headed in the same direction. And that's an amazing feat. I've never solved that problem. We use whips, we use all kinds of threats, but we do not solve this problem. Then bathroom calls, and we have things where we miss boarding planes. And we have bathroom calls where we're trying to cross the border in just one time. And you know, you have 29 on the bus, but number 30's gone. They're in the bathroom, and the border closes in 30 minutes. And you will be stuck forever in Jordan with the rest of your life. And you have thoughts of this verse, and you think biblically I could let the door shut on this child. And I could say the bridegroom came and you were not to be seen and it's over with in your life. And you fantasize about this verse. But you realize that you do not have the power of the door. And so you gracefully use compassion here. And only Jesus is the one that shuts the door. But it worries me about the groups that we have that if we cannot honestly make this shutting of the door. When the door shuts, it's interesting, the scene on both sides of the door you see the outside scene, and the group is huddled. They use an equal number here. And the group is huddled outside the door. Y'all, notice they expected to get in. Their extinguished lamps are hanging in their despairing hands. They're huddled outside the door because the door was shut in their face. They were not the enemies of the bridegroom. 
They thought themselves to be the friends of the bridegroom. They had regard for the bridegroom. The door keeps its secret, and only the guest knows its gladness. It means security. It means untold blessedness. From songs and laughter on the inside to the vain cries on the outside. The fruitlessness of wishes for entrance. I don't care how hard they wish to enter. If your theology says those who wish to get in, get in, they beat at the door, is not enough. This is an interesting parable that talks about the wishing is not enough. Perhaps the wishing only came when it was shut. If the desire for getting in were enough, the door would open wide. The bridegroom says, I know you not. Their partial preparation prevents his from recognizing them as his. I would say here that the challenge of this parable is, is don't let the life ebb away without securing the one thing you need. You've got to secure the one thing you've got to have. And the parable of the virgins is where Jesus says, you've got to think ahead and have preparation and readiness for what's coming. He moves into the next parable. And I would call this a Mr. Do-Nothing in evangelism and discipleship. And he starts it, we're like a man, and he begins to tell us, he ties these parables into each other. Now, they said that in the commentaries that the genius of Jesus was that he didn't just stop with the parable of the virgins. Because we'd think, great, we can just wait. And we'd all move somewhere and just wait for his return. But then this one's horrible. It's that dirty little four-letter word that we all hate. It says that we have to work. And Jesus shows both sides of the equation of waiting and working and how they work together. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30, is a parable of the talents. Now, a lot of times we use this parable to stand alone. And we talk about the talents in life, but it's in direct regard to the prophetic part of Matthew 24 and then 25 to the parable part of what he expects out of our life during these times. He has two men. He actually has three. It says, after a long time. Are you getting the impression that after a long time he's put hints in the Bible? Would you say that in this passage, after a long time, this carries centuries in its folds? <laughs> that hidden away in these words are hundreds and hundreds of years. The first guy, he invested, and he made double the amount. If you can look on the back of your sheets, I'm not telling you this is biblically for sure, but I'm just giving you ideas of investments of how you can double your money, making disciples. How about if we wanted to double our church? Y'all, think about this. Literally, in one week, we could double the size of our church if everyone went out and one person was saved and discipled. It would only take everyone doing one person. We could double the number of Christians on the earth if everybody won one. It's an incredible thought to see how quickly that evangelism could take place. But this is the equation that's given here, is that we can double what we have. The investment of the two-talent guy is interesting because he said, I may not have what he has, but I can double what I have. So you don't have to have what everyone else is working with. You don't have to say, man, this person is so gifted in this area. All you're expected to do is double what you have. You know, I had the privilege a few weeks ago looking into the scholarships of the school. And man, it blessed my heart seeing some people that are given scholarships. I mean, you talk about investment. If you want to lay an investment, is take a kid does not have any Christian parenting and put him in a Christian school. I am telling you, what an opportunity for investments. I about begin to weep looking at some of the people in the church that have taken on of compassion and just said, this is something I'm going to do. And I thought, investments. It's a good thing that I would like to meet the Lord on that day and said, I invested in this kid's life. I was thinking this parable is very much one from a businessman. And for some reason, I think in the church, we over-spiritualize so much that we're scared to talk about the kingdom as if it's a business. But I don't think Jesus as a Jew had a problem with that especially when we're carrying on business pretty hard and heavy in the background. In the realm of business, we're so interested in numbers, but when we get into Christianity, we just spiritualize it and just think, oh, we don't have to do anything, it'll just take care of itself. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with realizing that there's a lot of parallels in the business world to the Christian world. We were asked to go out to May, Texas and to do a Bible study. And in May, Texas, what makes you successful is peanut farming. And all the guys get there and they talk about their crops of peanut farming. I'll never forget this conversation I had with one guy. He said that he decided to plant his peanuts a different way than any of the other guys that ever planted them. He planted them a different time. And you're very much depending upon the rains. He said God told him to. He was the laughing stock of May, Texas for when he planted and how he planted. When the crops came in that year, that man so overshadowed everyone else's peanuts that he was the wealthiest man out of that crop of peanuts in May, Texas. Was he laughed at anymore? No. Do we like success stories? Yes. I think it's interesting, a farmer that raises grapes, if he comes in with basketfuls of grapes, he is considered a successful farmer. A smart businessman is successful depending on his productivity. And so many times I think we're scared of numbers in the church. You know, we talk about, well, I don't want to say X amount of numbers because I'm afraid I'll take credit for it. Well, if we take credit for it, it says you get your reward on earth and you just don't get it in heaven. But I don't see the book of Acts as being afraid of numbers. It said 5,000 were saved on that day. 3,000 were saved on that day. And it talked about he raised this one, one, two, three, from the dead. And it talked about things in groups of numbers. Y'all, I challenge you not to be afraid of productivity in the kingdom of God. Bruce Wilkinson wrote a whole book called Secrets of the Vine. And he challenged this whole idea. How come in the realm of business we're so interested in numbers, but when we get into Christianity, we just spiritualize it and just think, oh, we don't have to do anything, it'll just take care of itself. When very clearly here, this is a parable based on your productivity is keyed into your relationship with God. Some bring forth 30% fruit, some bring forth 60% fruit, some bring forth 100% fruit. I challenge your productivity. There is nothing wrong with praying that God will give you the wisdom to move from 30 to 60 and from 60 to 100. Do not have the type of theology that thinks productivity is wrong in the kingdom of God. I say that this parable here goes directly against it. Now, what happens is you get a fear factor. Do you realize the guy that did nothing... It said that he was afraid, so I did nothing. I might do something wrong, so I didn't do anything at all. Do you realize that a lot of times what we're fighting is a fear factor? I had never, ever heard this verbalized until the day we bought KPSM. We were living in Dallas, and I have never been so excited in my life. It was absolutely a miracle how we purchased a radio station. I called up some of my parents' friends, and I told them the entire story of what God had done. I was overwhelmed that from Brownwood, Texas, could own a radio station, and now God had put that stewardship into our hands. The first words out of their mouth was, I think I would give it up and I wouldn't take the radio station because aren't you afraid you're going to do something wrong with it with the money and corrupt? So she told me, she said, my advice to you is not to take the station. And I sat there and I thought, I had never heard that theology before said in words, that we're afraid that we're going to do wrong, so therefore let's not do anything at all. Jesus condemns this thing with some of the strongest words that he uses. What about when you are producing in your life? Sometimes you get afraid. I think about it and I liken it to John the Baptist in, in Matthew 11:3 3 and 5. You know, he had been so sure of himself with Jesus. You remember the John the Baptist, what he had said? Man, I am not even fit to untie this guy's sandals. But when everything went wrong and the cost was getting too great for him, remember what John the Baptist said? Are you the one? He went from thinking, I can't even untie his sandals, to thinking, are you sure you're the right one? Was the cost of my life, is it enough? Is the productivity enough? Notice how Jesus answers him. He answers him with action. He didn't answer him with theology. He answers him with action. He said, John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the lepers are healed, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he answered him in terms of productivity. The answer to fear is productivity. That God will give you the ability to produce. 
I think one soldier said that all soldiers fight afraid. And the good thing about our king is we can get fear out of our life. Now I want you to see something in verse 16, Matthew 25, 16. The one who received five talents went out. He went straightway, he went immediately. Do you see the verse straightway is King James immediately NAS? That immediately when he received what God had entrusted to him, he immediately put it into practice. And the other guy received what God had given him, and he immediately went and hid it. It brought him immediately into action. The productive ones were called good and faithful. Y'all think about this for a minute. What would it be like to be called good by God? I can't even imagine that. He didn't just call him faithful in this parable. He called him good. Of course it's a reflected goodness. It says the moon has no light of its own. He's only seeing what he put in us. But he called him good in the parable. He didn't call him brilliant. He didn't call him successful. He called him good and he called him faithful. To be called faithful by God. Verse 28 through 29 again is that idea. Production means more to do. <laughs> that one guy, when talent was taken away, he was handed more. Enter into the joy. Look in verse 26. The other one he called evil and lazy. This guy lost what he had so carefully kept. Man, that's what you compromise to keep, you will eventually lose. This guy lost everything he had carefully kept. First time we were in Israel, we had found a place where we could buy Hebrew English Bibles and Hebrew Russian Bibles. And we were trying to challenge our team to buy Bibles. I'll never forget one of them told us, I don't have any money to buy Bibles. Now the Bibles were really expensive. They were $2.75 each. I watched the same person that day and every day following buy ice cream. Ice cream was $3.50 in Israel. It was a shock to me to watch not having enough to buy a Bible, but having enough to buy an ice cream. I'll never forget, we were on some mount of where Elijah was, and there was a Russian Jew there, and he was playing his trumpet, and everybody was giving him money. We were supposed to give him a Bible, and I go, that's a great idea. We bought five, and we had made a list of who we had given those five Bibles to. And besides the fact that we had only had five left, they had put all of our luggage underneath the bus and we only had our handbags, and our souvenirs were all underneath. We grabbed each other's hands, and we prayed that God would provide a Bible. And we named off the five people we'd given a Bible to. I went back to the bus, and there unzipped in the top of my day bag was a Hebrew-Russian Bible. I cannot tell you the feeling it was. Asked the bus to stop, chased that guy down, and handed that Russian Jew a Bible. The same price as an ice cream cone. And as our bus pulled out, we looked as that Jew was sitting on a picnic table reading that Bible, and that man was seeing his own Russian Bible <laughs> right in his hands at the price of an ice cream. Evil and lazy to lose what we so carefully had kept. Notice the next thing. Compare the first words that came out of each of them's mouth. The first thing that comes out of our mouths. The first two... The thing they acknowledged was what God had given them. They saw God as giving. They said, and God gave me five and I have. Do you see how that they acknowledge God as a giving God? The first two. They started their account with what God had done for them in their life. The last man, he saw God as a demanding God. All the restrictions to Christianity, the demand, and he did not like the demand. I can tell you very quickly on Judgment Day where you'll fall. If you see God as good and all the things he's given you to work with, you will be productive in your life. If you see God as demanding and restrictions on Christianity and all he does is demand more and more out of you, you will fall in the category of the second man who was called evil and lazy. It's amazing what we acknowledge with our mouth of what God does. But still, the compassion of Jesus is strong because with us, he gave us a secret in verse 27. He said, so if you are this man, the one-talent man, and you feel too weak for independent action, that you're afraid to invest on your own, he goes, you could at least get interest. Now, interest is 3 to 4% these days, wouldn't you think? 
The other guys had gotten 100% on their return. But he makes an option to us, and he says you can make 3 to 4%. If you're timid, if you're conscious that God didn't give you as many talents as others, if you're pressed by the heavy sense of responsibility, and you shrink from Christian enterprises for fear of heavier condemnation, Christ gives you an answer. And he said at least you could have put it in the bank. And at least you could have gotten interest. You want me to put that in layman's terms for Mr. Do-Nothing? If you do not have an ability, or you do not feel that you have an ability to go out and make disciples and double your investment, then throw yourself full force into someone's project who is. Use every bit of your resources to back up someone else and at least get a percentage on what they're doing. And I think this is so amazing to me that Christ did not cut this guy off totally. He said what could have been in your life is at least you could have put it in on someone else's productivity. You know, it almost makes me want to cry here to think that if if we don't double our investments, we're not talking money now, we're talking souls. That if we go through life and we never ever double our investment take in life, that Christ is willing to drop to our level and say, I'll give you another way of doing it. At least use your resources on earth to do everything you can to back up somebody else. Number four, Mr. Do-Nothing on works of service. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. This one he ties in, but when. This is an interesting parable because they did not understand that their actions had that much significance in life. It's also one of the few places in the Bible that Jesus declared himself to be judge and king. The sheep and goats in that society are very difficult to tell apart. There's only one person that really can do it, and that's a shepherd. (laughs) People that work with sheep. And at this point, he is discussing a judgment of nations. The idea in this parable is as diversified, you will not believe how many different theories they have of what this parable means. The judgment of nations. But let's make it simple. The judgment of Americans, whom much has been given, much is expected. Why in America do we have the idea whom much has been given, nothing is expected? You know, Thomas Nelson, they were telling about this in Christianity Today, came out with a new Bible for teenage girls. It's called the Resolve Bible. It's done in the most fashionable color, for teenage girls. It has makeup tips. Its pictures are all full of models on the cover. It has a dating column in the Bible, and it's become a bestseller. There's a girl, Elizabeth. She's 16 years of age. She was born to Christian parents. The only difference is she lived in Southeast Asia. She was eager to earn money for her family and save for college. Bob Seeple's organization is one of those that goes in and they're trying to stop this practice that's going on among Christians. This is their most recent find, and it blew their minds when this happened. They busted in on this place. Her aunt told her, come with me. We have a good job across the border. And they sold her into a place of, um, what would you call it? For $250, the first customer robbed her of her virtue. For seven months, money was spent on her customer by customer. On the wall of that brothel, when they busted in the doors and they opened it up to the girl, they saw scrawled on the wall, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is the strength of my life. When they come to devour my flesh, the Lord is the strength of my life. They started counting, and in every place of that girl's room, or if you want to call it cell, or whatever you want to call it, she had written scriptures from one end of that room to the other. They pulled her out of that thing and set her free. You know, I'm glad to be an American, but with freedom comes responsibility and a greater judgment. And I say that rather than your Bible be in your comfort, We are, in America, making the Bible comfortable to our teenagers. And there's such a difference from understanding what that girl understood, that the Bible was the comfort of her entire life and what rescued her out of a very bad situation. In this country, we have flipped the marketing ideal, and we are trying to make the Bible comfortable. You know, the Bible will never be comfortable to our flesh. 
You know, I sit here today, I don't care when we get out of here if you like the sermon or not, if it's your least favorite. I hope when we're through that your productivity level is at a higher level. Because sometimes it's those teachers in school that you dislike the most is the ones that you learn the most from. And in this face of the greatest need, the scary part of this parable is to be unmoved. There was a businessman in Brownwood, Texas named Jim Randolph, and he was killed in that plane crash about two years ago. He was owner of the Chrysler dealership. I'll never forget the day that Tom called me into his office, and he said, this man wants you to plant $1,200 into this certain family. And so I went to check out the situation in this family, and this family had not had food for that week. They had run out of food. They'd run out of everything. It was Christmas time. They had no gifts. The gifts weren't even the, the worry between them. And this person on their own had been trying to serve God without any kind of help from anyone. No, no parents, no church, nothing. They had nothing. The church hadn't helped. Nothing had helped. And so they had miraculously been saved. But somewhere in the time, this was the first time in their life, they felt like God had totally let them down and failed them. And they'd looked up into heaven and they said some choice words to God they weren't too proud of. And it came about from a mother not being able to feed her children. She got on her knees and she repented and she told God, I'm asking you to forgive me for what I said. And she said she felt like God made up with her. And I pitched her the envelope and I said, I guess he has. When she pulled out the $1,200, she didn't throw her arms around my neck. She didn't thank me. She didn't ask me where it came from. She fell on her knees and she gave thanks to God as if I wasn't even in the room. And I realized that God and her had a relationship that could not be described. I called Jim Randolph up. He was going to Dallas. They gave me a cell phone number. And I told him the story of what had happened. And I didn't realize that his wife said that the kids had decided to do without Christmas to have enough money to do this. Jim Randolph got to crying so hard, he pulled over beside the road and he couldn't get a hold of himself. Right after the funeral when he died, I, I wrote his wife and I thanked her. I said, I pray that Brownwell will have other men like Jim Randolph. This Catholic, loudmouth, obnoxious, lovable guy. And you know what she said to me? She said, I'm going to tell you, Angie. She said, I could never talk to Jim in that month that he did not tell me that he had always known that he was a generous man. He had seen himself as a generous man. He gave money to people but he had never seen himself as a man that God had used him for a specific reason in someone's life to change it. And she said, what you told him, let him know his giving had actual significance to God. And I'm sorry, but I cannot read this verse here that says, when did I do this to you, Lord? And he said, when you did it the least of these, you've done it unto me. And on Judgment Day, I don't have all the answers in there, but I know one thing. There were times that Jim Randolph pulled that Bible off the a shelf and he read scriptures to people in there. And on that judgment day, I said, God, remember that day. Remember that day when he did it to the least of these. When there's something in a man that gives you compassion. And I contrast it to another man that was a, a church man where I told him a story about this same family. He owed this person $250 for reimbursements and he refused to pay them. And I told him how they had gone 10 days without lights in their house and they'd burned candles. And I could not believe in me telling this story that hearing the details of this story did not make that man rip out his own checkbook and write a check for $250 and reimburse it. Y'all, the scary part of this story is in the face of the greatest need, nothing moves us. That there's nothing that moves us to compassion. In Luke 16, 19, Jesus tells a story of a horrible contrast of two people where nothing moves you to compassion. You know, our college kids, where they're raised not to be where they expect the gospel would be comfortable to them. But the fact that I think of one college kid who put our trip to Mexico together, who came to me the other day and says, could you please give me a list of people in, in this town that you know of that have great needs in their life? And you know what they do on their dates? They're not here, so I use this story. They use their date to go over to these people's houses who have needs, and they use their date to help a person's life, to do projects for people in need. Same kid took our list of 50 people that either saved or rededicated their life, 
of those that were saved in the Todd Agnew thing, and they're going to each one of those people and following up to make sure that that salvation was changed. I ask you, with your children, you're either going to be paying a lot of money and making a book a bestseller and getting in all the colors and make sure the models are right, or you're going to teach that kid that book can absolutely change a life. It scares me that to whom much has been given, much would be expected. And somehow in America, Christians are teaching their kids to whom much has been given, not anything is expected. The undreamed of significance of our deeds. Doing nothing condemns, and he is shocked that he has given a fatal wound. In Matthew 26, 1, we're going to close with that. I want you to look to make sure you know that I'm telling you the truth. But in Matthew 26, 1, it says, And it came about when Jesus had finished all these words. It is amazing. It tells you in Matthew 26, 1, this is where I end the answer to what you asked me in days. There's no break in this. It's one continuation after another. And then he goes on to say, two days from now the Son of Man is to be crucified. This was Jesus' sermon. This is what he had on his heart two days before he died. And my observation is his words got stronger closer to the end. How much of these parables are just spiritual drapery? And how much of it unveils the essential truth to what will make it on the end days? What happens to Mr. Do-Nothing in these stories? Of ungirded loins, of unlit lamps, of unused talents, of unfed souls, of unvisited sick and unvisited prisoners. In the sheep and the goats, Mr. Do-Nothing goes into everlasting punishment. In the parable of the talents, he goes into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the bridesmaid in the wedding, the door is shut in his face. In the bad slave, he is cut into pieces and then thrown into hell. You know what? In college, I always had this thing. I would always get a test from the professor that I was about to take. I never was doing it to learn what they were going to, what the test was or memorizing because those professors, they were really smart. They have them A through E and they rotate them. But I wanted to break that professor's testing code. I wanted to know, is he going to test from the lecture notes? Is he testing from the textbooks? Is he going to test on essays? Is he going to test on the right? Did you know I never failed my first test like everyone else because I broke the testing code? I'm going to tell you, this is your cheat sheet. Break the testing code. This is judgment day. He's testing us on A, our consistency of duty. B, our preparedness and readiness. C, our productivity. And D, our compassion. In our conclusion, I'm going to end with something that Corey Tim Boone said that I think sums it all up. She said, if I came into your house and you weren't there, and I decided, hey, they're not there, I'm going to sit down and watch their TV set. You might think I was a little presumptuous. Depends on how good of friends we are that I could come into your house and watch TV. But if your house was on fire, and I came in and I watched TV, and I let the whole back of your house burn down, you would think I was not only lazy, but you would think I was evil. And I think this is how God frames this whole thing. It's not so much that some things in our life are bad. It's just the times we do them in. We're living in a world where it's on fire. And he's saying, the house is on fire. What are you going to do? Amen.